Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. I can remember as a kid waiting in line to see Santa. And now as a parent, um, that when we have been able to take our kids, especially as they're smaller, to, and, and the, the experience of seeing Santa in whatever neighborhood mall you want to go to. And, and so I can remember turning, you, know, you would wait in this long line, and maybe coming up to it, you could see where he was. Now they keep things pretty shaded. And so you would you know, wait in this long line, and then as you turn the corner, you see other kids encountering him. And, and there's the ongoing debate in line on whether this is the real Santa or one of his helpers. Um, and, and usually the beard is really what's being evaluated in that debate, I think. And so the, in that debate, there's, and then you watch the different reactions that different kids have. And we have three kids, and all three would have different reactions of, you know, some kids panic and cry. Um, some kids pull back in hesitation. Some, like, lean in and soak in the moment. You can tell that they're present in that place. Some take this as their one chance to manipulate the big man into exactly what they want an official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle. And, and so it, this is the, and so I think as, as I was thinking about it this week, and we're in the Christmas season, which I love Advent and the Christmas season, that it, it, when we think about the way that we approach God in prayer, I think there's some similarities there, that if we ever get an understanding or a taste of his presence, a sense of actually being in the presence of the Almighty God, then, then we can react similarly. Some of us might panic and want out, and some of us pull back in hesitation, and some try to manipulate God with a wish list of the things that we want, and some lean in and soak up in the moment. And today we continue our series in Exodus. We have been in this series, this is week 11 out of 12, and so next week we wrap up the series um, and, but in, this week, we're going to look at a, an encounter that Moses has with God. And so where we left off, the Israelites had been brought out of Egypt, and then they, as they were brought out of Egypt, and God provided for them in the wilderness and gave them victory over so the, the Amalekites, who, is, who were their enemies. And then they, they came to a point where Moses went up onto Sinai. They entered into a covenant relationship with God, and when he was gone for 40 days, it was too much, and so they made a golden calf. And Aaron presented it to the people and said, look, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and declared a feast to Yahweh. And so God's anger burned against his people. And so we left off with this golden calf and that, that they weren't destroyed, but seeing the people's idolatry and trying to shape God into the image and likeness of, that was more palatable for the people around them, being influenced more by culture than by God's self-revelation. So that's where we left off, and now we're going to continue to enter back into that place. In Exodus 32 to 34, we see Moses interceding on behalf of the people and re trying to renew the covenant with God. And one commentator said, in the lengthy dialogue between God and Moses in these chapters, we may be brought as close to God as it is possible for Scripture to take us. 
And so that's what we have in front of us today. That what we will see is that we can come into the presence of God through prayer. And so Moses, in the presence of God, says this. He said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you also have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, not I and your people? Is, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you will stand, shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping the steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so this is a, a moment on Mount Sinai where we get a glimpse of what it was, with the experience that Moses had in the presence of the Lord, Yahweh, directly, the God who had brought them up out of Egypt. And, and he's interceding for the people who had made this golden calf. And you can see the interplay here, the back and forth that Moses is saying, saying, listen, if your presence is going to go with us, then don't send us out from this place because he reminds God, you've told us that we would be your treasured possession, that we would be a kingdom of priests, that we would be a distinct people, and that what is our distinction if you're not with us? But, but you see this, he says, you know, you've revealed, you, we know each other's names, and you said that you know my name, and Moses says, so if I found favor in your sight, don't just tell me your name, show me your ways. 
And Moses is pleading with God for something more. He says, says, I want to see your glory now. And God says to him, I will make my goodness pass before you. And we're going to look at why that distinction is made by God. And so he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And then he, Moses is able to hear God's self-proclamation of his name and his character on Mount Sinai. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word chesed that we've seen earlier in Exodus, this language that is used in the Old Testament to indicate God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, as it's described in the Jesus Storybook Bible. A God of faithfulness, keeping that chesed love for thousands and forgiving transgressions of sin, but who does not forget the sin of the guilty? And so what we see in Moses here shows us something of, of pursuing God's presence in prayer. And I think this is practical for us as well as, the, I mean, the, the theology of the section is profound and it's difficult to figure, even figure out how do you take the, the God's self-revelation here and, and cover this material in one sermon together. But in this, there's something for us because Moses is pursuing God's presence and it's in prayer. And I don't think that for most of us, our regular personal prayer time feels quite like what we have described here. Is that a fair assumption? My guess is that none of you this week heard God's audible voice tell you, meet me at this place at this time in the morning, show yourself to me, and then had this experience where Moses literally came down from the mountain glowing, radiating light to the point where the people were terrified of Moses' face. And so it tells us later on in chapter 34 that he had to wear a veil over his face because the people were scared of him. And so looking around the room right now, it feels like none of us have had that experience this week. <laughs> it's, it's Sunday morning, and, and some of you are awfully tired. And our prayer time, my prayer life doesn't often feel transcendent, like I've been a taste of God's actual presence like this. Prayer can feel like a grind and a duty and something we do because we know we ought to, but, but it doesn't feel like something that it opens us up to the transcendent experience of the Almighty God, like what's described here. Now, some of that is our own expectations, some of that is time and history and the course and the importance of Moses, but some of this, I think, is because we, we don't understand what prayer actually is. So we're going to spend our time today understanding what it means to pursue God's presence through prayer. There are seven actions that we see from Moses that we can follow here. First, seek God in humility and in boldness. I know that sounds like two, <laughs> um, but I wanted it to be seven because it's complete. Um, that's, that's not totally true. I do think these two hang together. Mo Moses is bold in the way he intercedes with God. I mean, for him to stand boldly and say, hey, I'm not going from this place unless you go with me. That's a level of boldness that he shows. That, that for Moses to say, say, listen, I want you to show me your glory, like almost like a Jerry Maguire moment, right? Like, show me the glory. That, that Moses here is saying, saying I, you know, you've got to teach me your ways. Not, I know you know my name, but that's not enough for me. I want to, I want to know your ways. And, and for Moses to have, I mean, it was bold for him to have walked down the mountain with the tablets of stone that were inscribed by the finger of God and to destroy those tablets before he got down to the people when they were worshiping the golden calf. 
Uh, the reason Moses did that, I'm convinced, is because he didn't want the full weight of the law of God to come down in judgment on those people, and so he was destroying it before he got there. But now, to go back to God and ask that he renew his covenant with this people who, who had left him just 40 days in is bold. Now, his, his act of intercession goes back to chapter 32, and so we read there that the Lord said to Moses, so after the golden calf was made, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. These are God's words to Moses. Up until this point, every time since God has brought them out of Egypt, he introduces himself to Moses and to the people as, as you are my people. Look how I carried you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. And now he says to Moses, hey, you got to go down and see about your people who you brought out. So he places the responsibility on Moses. He says, they've turned aside quickly from the way that I commanded them. They've made themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. There, now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And so God comes to Moses here and says, these people are stiff-necked. The idea there is, is like an ox pulling a plow that won't turn and follow the commands of the, the farmer behind him. They are going their own direction regardless of where they're being guided. But do you see that what God threatens here? Moses, I'm going to leave these people behind. I'm going to start over with you. That's a heady thing. It wouldn't, it's not hard to imagine Moses here going, these people have been a pain. <laughs> like, this sounds like a great plan, Lord. Let's do that. Why don't you wipe them out and start over with me, and I will be the great nation. But he doesn't do that. He just, it, we don't, there's no, any temptation that might have been there was brushed aside. And so it's here, Moses is, it's said later that he was the most humble man that ever lived, and we see something of that here. You know, it's been said by some that, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And Moses models that here. He, his entire focus was off of himself and onto the people of Israel who he was interceding for. And he was standing between God and the people to plead for God's mercy. And, and so I think we tend to think of humility and boldness as opposites. And we tend to think that if somebody's humble, then they can't be bold. But that might just reveal how selfish we actually are. Because if we're focused on ourselves and our needs and our desires and our ideals, then it's true. Boldness is right alongside arrogance. Because we're fighting for ourselves with boldness. But, but if we're focused on others outside of ourselves and the good of others, and here even Moses is focused on God's glory, then our boldness is welcomed by God. We, you know, our, our, Moses stood boldly and spoke to God while the people shrank back at Sinai and said, when, as soon as they heard God's voice, said, we don't want to hear this anymore. Moses, you go on our behalf. They had tried to reshape God into more palatable forms where Moses experienced God as he is. And so he stood boldly asking God for his mercy. Now, Jesus encouraged this kind of boldness, too, that as he taught over and over on prayer, whether he used the image of, of petitioning a judge or, you know, when he taught in Luke 11 on prayer, he said to his disciples, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. 
And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is shut and my children are in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. (laughs) If you come to my house in the middle of the night asking for bread, that would probably be my response. Like, what what are you doing here? Go home. I tell you, though, though he won't get up and give you anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a, a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is encouraging and calling his disciples to impudence in their prayer, to boldly petition for the things they're asking for. And so if we want to pursue God's presence in prayer, it begins by seeking God in both humility and boldness, not focused just on our Christmas list, but willing to come to him for the sake of his glory and others' good. Second, it means that we will pursue God's will in opposition to our own. Pursue God's will as it's been revealed to us. And so in Exodus 32, in that earlier section, Moses went on to say, um, so God said, you know, let my, leave me alone. These people are stiff-necked. I'm done with them. My anger is going to burn against them, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. But Moses implored the Lord God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? He's saying to God, like, hey, remember, this was your will that you called the people to yourself. You saved the people. You remembered your covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, and you came and saved these people. And so he's, he's calling out the will of God that has been revealed by God to save these people and bring them out of Egypt and then bring them into the land of rest, to bring them to the promised land. And so Moses is coming to pray, into prayer and into God's presence with a firm belief in, in, what, in what God's will is, in what he has revealed, and he's reciting it back to God in prayer. In our own prayer, let's learn to pray the same way. Not asking God to conform his will to our will, but asking God to reveal his will to us and to conform us to it. And when things seem dissonant in our lives, which is most of life, most of our lives, we think we have a pretty good idea of the way things, that ought, things ought to be going, and very rarely do they go just how we want them to go. But, but when that happens in our lives, when we feel that dissonance and that gap, we can call out the will of God as it's been revealed to us. And so, when you're in a hard place, when you're suffering, we can pray back to God, Romans 8, that says that God works out all things for the good of those who love him and say, God, I believe that that's true. You know, Christ has shown me that you love me and I, I do love you. And so what is the good that you're working out in my life through this? Because it's really hard to see. But to call out the will of God to God will remind us of who he is. And, and that explores that often the things that we want and that our heart longs for are good things. And so trying to get under that So if you're having trouble in your marriage, it's a good thing to want greater intimacy and closeness and unity in marriage, and and that's a good thing that God wants in in our marriages. So call that out to him. Say, Lord, I know that this is what you want, so help us to get there. 
If you're having trouble with relationships, if you're having trouble with your own discipline and, and, making, and, and living life the way that you know you ought to, call out to God. These are good things that help him, ask him to help you to pursue these good things and lift them up because he is the only one who can actually make a difference and bring transformation in your heart or anyone else's. And Paul Miller said in his book, A Praying Life, sometimes when we say God is silent, what we're, what's really going on is that he hasn't told the story the way we wanted it told. He'll be silent when we want him to fill in the blanks of the story we are creating, but with his own stories, the ones we live in, he is seldom silent. So Moses here, as he goes to God, says, you brought these people out of Egypt. This is, these are the people that you said you would take from your, for yourself. Back to chapter 33, what we read today, that he said, how will it be known that, that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not you're going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He's saying, Lord, this is your will. This is what you want and what you intend and what you told us. And he's reminding God of it as he pursues it. And so we seek God in humility and boldness. We pursue God's will. And third, remember what God has done. This is closely tied to the last one. But this is essential if you're going to make it through life. Um, this is why so many of the Psalms recount God's past action, too. Have you ever noticed that if you read the Psalms? Their prayers, they consistently will say, There's a, here's the problem, here's how God has worked in the past, so we can trust that he's going to be faithful in the future. This is why it's so important to be immersed in Scripture as God's Word and immersed in church history and understand how God has worked among his people is because there's a track record of what God has done that can bring us hope even as we turn to God in prayer. And this is why Moses is saying, again, you brought these people out of Egypt. You've already saved them from the Egyptians. He's saying, he's recounting to God the things that he has done, and, and so doing so, for, for Moses and for us, it also helps us remember ourselves, because it recites the story, God's story, and places us within it. And so that's what Paul Miller was talking about. He went on to say, to cite our own current cultural setting, and he said, the movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need prayer to pray because everything's under control. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control and little is possible. My guess is that you've come in on one of those spectrum, and at the end of one of those, that spectrum on one side or the other this morning. Either in naive optimism that you don't have encounters like what we read in Exodus 34 because you don't need to pray. Things are going pretty well for you. You're just like, it's just gonna keep rolling. Or, into cynicism where you feel so out of control that you can't pray because it doesn't feel like anything's possible to change. Well, Paul Miller goes on, with the good shepherd no longer leading us through the valley of the shadow of death, we need something to maintain our sanity. Cynicism's ironic stance is a weak attempt to maintain lighthearted equilibrium in a world gone mad. Without the good shepherd, we alone, are alone in a meaningless story. Weariness and fear leave us feeling overwhelmed and unable to move, and cynicism leaves us doubting, unable to dream. That combination shuts down our hearts, and we just show up for life going through the motions. The answer for our cynicism is to remember who God is and what he's done, to recite 
the power and the majesty and the, the actions of a God who is transcendent and yet cares about his people and is active in the world he's made. Moses reminds God of what he's done, not because God forgets anything, but, but because it restores the story of God's work in, in Moses and for the Israelites. And so in prayer, we need to remember that what God has done and recite it and rest in it and recall it and remember it. We seek God in humility and boldness. We pursue God's will, remember what he has done. And then fourth, we need to lift up God's name and glory. And so this is throughout that Moses in, in chapter 32 again says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent of this disaster among your people. So he's saying, he's, Moses is crying out to God here, like, listen, and, and that's what he says later on in 33 when he says, if you're not going with us, don't, don't send us out from this place at all. Like, we can't go without your presence. You've got to come with us. What Moses is saying is he's saying to God, your glory is primary here, and we don't let the Egyptians get the last laugh among the, among the peoples of the earth, laughing at the death of the people that you just saved. Lord, why would you have brought them all the way out here just to leave them for, and, and kill them at the foot of the mountain for the sake of your glory, push through and bring us through to the promised land? And so Moses is calling that out to God and lifting up his name and his glory, focused on his name and his glory, calling for the glory of God to be revealed over the Egyptians. And that, again, is a prayer that Jesus modeled for us. It's the model prayer that is often called the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus said to his disciples, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, in this prayer, I think for myself and most of us, I'm prone to spend most of my time on give us this day our daily bread, on the needs that are immediate in front of me, saying, Lord, why aren't you working in this way? Why aren't you providing this thing? Why aren't you acting in this thing that is immediately in front of me, today's issue that I'm facing? And it's a shortened, limited view on, on what we are led to pray toward, that, that to lift up God's name and glory. And that's what, how it, the first half of the Lord's Prayer starts out. Our Father in heaven, we come into, into God's presence in intimacy in Christ, but what is the first thing we say? Hallowed be your name. Your name is be lifted up. Your name be glorified. And how your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so daily bread comes, but it's not the dominant theme of the Lord's Prayer. The dominant theme of the Lord's Prayer is a focus on God's kingdom and his glory. Saying, let it be in, on earth as it is in heaven, that means that God's word is sound, that God's word advances and is true, and that his glory is lifted up. And so how often are we praying that way? We are such limited creatures that, of course, if our prayer is only focused on us, it's going to get short and boring rather than focusing on the immeasurable majesty of the one true God. How often do you pray for the church at large, not just Redemption Hill, I mean Christians in the world and the advance of God's kingdom? How often do you pray for others in your time in prayer and intercede for them like Moses was for the Israelites here? People that have made your life miserable, 
that probably deserve the wrath of God to rain down on them, and yet Moses was the one standing in the gap saying, Lord, give them mercy. How often do you pray, not just out of concern for, for human issues, but for the sake of God's glory, how often do you pray that it might be in D.C. as it is in heaven? That it might be in this nation as it is in heaven, that it might be in this world as it is in heaven. If we want to pursue God's presence through prayer, we need to lift up God's name and his glory. And closely related to that and to these others, fifth, call out what God has promised. Moses again reminded God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In chapter 32, he said, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that's Jacob, your servants, whom, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, of heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is looking back to chapter 2. That in chapter 2, the Israelites, it felt like God was absent as the book of Exodus opens. That God is nowhere to be seen. And you wonder, is God even around and is he able to act? And so it's left with this vacuum of these people in suffering and enslaved in Egypt. And what we read at the end of chapter 2 is a major turning point. That during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It may f Remember, they had been in Egypt for 400 years and enslaved, not for that whole time, but for a chunk of time. And they didn't know if God was listening. It didn't happen quick either because Moses had his own issues and killed an Egyptian and then was running through the wilderness for years and started a whole family and the guy was like, you still have to go back to Egypt. And so it took some time even from this point, but God was working behind the scenes because he, listen to this, he remembered his covenant, God saw his people and God knew, so he heard, remembered, saw and knew his people. That hasn't changed and so when we pray, when we cry out to God from the depths of our hearts, God hears us. We cry out and remind God of his promises because, so that he will remember, not that he forgets, but because when we pray, we can urge God to remember what he has already promised. And when it tells us that God remembers, what it's telling us is not that he has forgotten like we would, but, but that he is about to act and that his actions will be perfect and that his actions will be consistent with the things that he has promised. And so when Moses is saying, Lord, remember this promise you made to Abraham and Isaac and Israel, what he's saying is, he's saying, this is, the, you, this is your promise. He's calling out the promises to God and saying, it's time for you to act on this. Why aren't you coming through on this? And so in the same way, we can come to God and trust that God is good and he is sovereign. And even when we're faithless, he is faithful. And so we can cling to his promises and ask him to move on the things that he's already told us he will. And that is an active movement of our dependence on God. Again, I think the reason that part of why so many of us pray so little is because we don't feel like we need God. H.B. Charles said, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. If that's true, then what's your dependence level on God right now in your life? Where are you at? 
And he went on to say, he said, think of it this way. The things you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. The things that you neglect to pray about are the things that you trust you can handle on your own. And so if you feel overwhelmed in your life, because it's because you think that you are the only one that's responsible to handle the problems that you're not bringing to God in prayer. But prayer puts us in an active position of dependence where we can call, but we can, we're not just there uncertain of who God is and what he'll do. He's shown us who he is. And so we are there resting in the promises and the goodness and the sovereignty of a God who cares. He hears you. He remembers. He knows you by name. And so we need to turn to him and call out what he's promised. Sixth, seek God's presence and linger there. In chapter 33, we read this about, about the tent of meeting, that the tent of meeting was put outside of the camp, and this is before the tabernacle was built. Next week, we're going to look at the tabernacle. But there was a tent of meeting where, and it tells us, Moses would go out every day, and he would meet with God in this tent. And so, you know, that there was, the people would rise up when Moses went out to it until he had gone in. When he entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend so that no one else would come in. The Lord would speak with Moses daily. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud, they would, they would rise up and they would worship at the tent door, and then Moses would leave and go to the camp. But it tells us this in chapter 33, verse 11. His assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses would go every day to meet with God. Joshua never left it. He wanted to linger in that place. We get this as, as in what we read today, that, that Moses is in the presence of God, and, and he's, he's saying, you know, I want these things for the people. He intercedes for the people. And the Lord says, all right, this thing I'll do to you. You found favor in my sight, and I know your name. And Moses said, okay. And he takes it a step further than that. Like, Moses got what he wanted. God's presence was going to go with them from Sinai, and he doesn't stop there. He continues to press to see God's presence and to be in that presence of God. He says, please, show me your glory. And he said, I'll make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Moses was seeking the presence of God and lingering there saying, okay, you know my name, now show me your ways. He wanted more, there was a hunger there, and he wouldn't move without the promise or presence of God. And one more quote from Paul Miller, he said, prayer is asking God to incarnate, to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors, for we, we sure know he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word, Ask him, tell him what you want, get dirty, write out your prayer requests, don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you, but seize the corner of his garment and don't let go until he blesses you and he will reshape the day. So in our prayer life, we don't just come to God with a laundry list of the, of the things we need. We call out his glory, call out his kingdom, and then seek his presence and don't leave without his presence going with you. Come to him and say, Lord, I'm not going to go on with my day until you meet me in this place. 
Don't, don't allow the busyness of your life to get in the way of your need for the presence of God in your life. Because as, as we just read, if you just go on with the seize the day mentality and give yourself your little pep talk in the morning, you will get broken down over and over and it will build over time. And so if that's going to happen, that leads to our seventh. Is ask God to reveal himself more fully. So yeah, we want to seek God's presence and linger there. But we need to realize that it's only God revealing himself to us that will allow us to see him more clearly. Now again, there was a covenant that was broken here and it needed to be restored. And so, so that was part of it. God says, all right, get these stone tablets together and I'm going to hide you in a rock because you can't handle this. And you'll see the trailing edge of my back and you'll, you'll see my goodness will pass before you. And, and, and then, but bring tablets of stone. And it goes on then in 34 to talk about the renewal of that covenant. And, and God did write his law on these new stone tablets. And Moses came down and his, with the tablets of the testimony in his hand and and they didn't, they, they, he didn't know that the skin of his face was, sh- was shining because he had talked with God. And so we, we read about the reestablishment of his covenant here. But at this moment where God reveals himself and passed before him, and while he hid Moses in the rock and said, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Like this is God's self-revelation of his character. And for years I've read and I think I've taught this passage as if Moses stepped too far here. Moses saying, show me your glory. And God's like, no, (laughs) I'll show you my goodness. And that's all you're going to get. But I don't, I don't actually, I've been convinced this week, I don't think that's the best way to read this text. There's no correction given to Moses here. He's not rebuked by God here. And they had already seen God's glory. This is what we read in the language in Exodus as we've studied it, that maybe this request to see God's glory wasn't as brazen as we think and certainly didn't cross a line like we can tend to think because we are told that they saw the glory of God in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. We're told that they saw the glory of God in the manna that was given from heaven. We're told that the glory of God descended on Mount Sinai for six days before God called Moses up on the seventh day. And so God's glory had been seen. And and so here for Moses to say, okay, Lord, you've been confirming your presence with us by showing us your glory all the way throughout. Now that I've asked this far that that your presence will go with us, now can you show me again your glory? He's asking for a visible confirmation of God's promise to him. And God doesn't rebuke him or correct him here. But as one commentator said, but as always, God sets his own agenda for God knows what we need better than we do. That, that Moses here asked to see, but he's told that it's not by seeing that God is best known. That he's, God says to him, I'm going to give you something better than you seeing my glory again. God instead says to him, so desiring to see the glory of the Lord isn't desiring enough. Because revelation of God's character and his person comes by hearing, not by seeing according to scripture, because God is spirit. And so Moses saying, now show me again, let me see your glory, give me a tangible manifestation of your glory. And God says, I've got something better for you. You're going to hear my goodness. You're going to hear who I am. 
And this self-revelation of God is what Scripture comes back to again and again and again and again to say this is Yahweh. This is the God we worship. He's a God who is gracious, a God who is merciful, a slow to anger, abounding in hesed love and faithfulness, extending chesed love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the character of God. In our prayer life, if we spend all our time asking God to show us something that we can see, I think it's because it's as big a request as we can imagine. We think that we need to see something miraculous in front of us, and what God is saying is that there's something greater, that it's not that we need to see something, but we need to hear about his goodness and his beauty and his majesty and his glory, the self-revelation of his goodness and character. If we turn to God in prayer, and so this is my hope today, if we turn to God in prayer, then chances are you're acknowledging something of his glory already. Even if it's just out of desperation, if you pray because you're like, I don't know if you're up there, but ah, I need some help. (laughs) And so you turn to desperation. Even that is acknowledging maybe there's someone that's bigger than me that can intercede and do something in my life. And so turning to God itself is acknowledging his glory. And, but, but here's the question today. I, I believe that most of you here believe that God is glorious. But my question is, do you actually believe that he's good? Do you believe that his goodness can actually meet you in your life? And do you pray in light of his goodness and grace and mercy and his hesed love? See, God's ultimate self-revelation comes to us in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so that's the incredible hope that we have. That's what we're celebrating in the Advent season is that God took on flesh and incarnated among us. That, and so in, that, in this story, we're, you know, we have a tendency to read this story, and I've already taught it today, as if we are all individually in the seat of Moses in this, in this, in this narrative. The reality is, very, we're not really in the seat of Moses in this story. We're in the seat of the Israelites. Moses was the one interceding on behalf of the people, and most of us, though, are terrified of God's presence and need an intercessor. And so we turn to other people to hoping that they can be the ones that, that have a more direct line. I've had my neighbors tell me that. Well, you're a pastor, so you've got a more direct line to the big guy. And I'm like, I don't know what you mean, <laughs> but let's talk about that <laughs> um, because that's a beautiful opportunity to tell you what the good news of the gospel actually is. See, the entire, our entire place in all of this story is changed because of Christ. This is what the New Testament shows us, that what is, is given to Moses as fully as he could receive it here is now exploded through the New Testament in the person of Christ. Hebrews shows us this, that, that because Jesus has gone before us, we can go to God directly, and we don't need an intercessor. You don't need to come to me to pray. You don't need to come to me to be forgiven just because I'm your pastor. No, no, no. We've got Jesus and I'm on my knees at the cross next to you. And with the need of a better Savior, Hebrews shows us that Jesus is a better high priest, that he's a better temple, that he's a better sacrifice once and for all, that he established a better covenant than Moses. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that, that we don't have a covenant established on tablets of stone, but written on human hearts. That, that God has done something greater in Christ. And, and so it, Jesus is a better intercessor than Moses. 
The author of Hebrews is explicit about that. Moses and Joshua were never able to actually provide the people rest, but Jesus is the one who says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. See, Jesus is the glory of God, and through him, we can see with unveiled eyes. We're no longer put under a veil like Moses, but we're instead brought into the presence of God and shown the fullness of the goodness of God. In 2 Corinthians, it says this, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because, they, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And Paul's crying out about his own people, the Jewish people here. A veil remains over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so therefore, in light of that, that God is trans if you're in Christ, you're being transformed from one glory to the next in, in the image and likeness of God himself. So therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This is what I want for you to walk away with today, church. If you believe not just in the glory of God that's been revealed in Christ, but actually have a taste of his goodness, then there will be nothing that can hold you back. You won't lose heart because you've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Do you remember Moses' plea on the mountain? Lord, Lord, you know my name, now show me your ways. In Christ, we reject underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we come before God in prayer, through Christ, these things are opened up to us with freedom. That we can see God with humility and boldness, not looking for our own gain and not looking for our own way, but, but coming before God boldly because a way has been made and the veil has been torn through Christ. We can pursue God's will because it's been revealed to us ultimately in Jesus we know how this story ends now. Moses had no idea. He said, well, you told us you'd bring us to this land. That was the deepest hope he has. Now we're told in Christ that we will inherit the entire earth for all of eternity. We can remember what God has done all the way through, all of his covenants, all of his interaction with his people, but ultimately in Jesus, because our great hope is that he has raised Jesus from the dead and we share in that resurrection. We can lift up God's name and glory because it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We can call out what God has promised to us. And the ultimate promise is in Christ that we're being reshaped in the image and likeness of God and have the hope of ultimate forgiveness because of him. 
And we can seek God's presence and linger there, knowing that, God is, that Jesus promised us his spirit and that the Holy Spirit moves with us so God's presence will never leave us. And so in that, when we ask God then, reveal yourself more fully to us, we're not coming with a veil over our faces, unable to comprehend the mysteries of the ages, but instead it's all been opened up for us. And, and we are in, so that the same God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God is greater than Santa Claus. <laughs> and our prayer can be better than our Christmas lists. These chapters in Exodus bring us into the presence of God as clearly and as closely as any place in Scripture. And they tell us about a God who's, who never changes. He's the Lord. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in Christ, we have direct access to the one true God in prayer. But today, leave this place not just with an understanding of his glory. My hope and my prayer for you is that you leave with a belief and a trust in his goodness. And Father, this we need from you. We as much as we seek you, the more we rely on ourselves to find you, the less likely that, that we will find you as you are and the more likely that we will reshape what we expect. And so we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we, we shape you into the image and likeness that we want you to take rather than trusting in the goodness that you've revealed to us. And we pray that you would help us to to see something of your glory, but even more, to know your goodness. And so we thank you for Jesus who has opened the way so that our, we can come to you in prayer. And I pray today that we would have a sense of your presence as we're gathered with your people coming to the table together, that you would move in our hearts and give us a sense of your, your closeness to us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.